Welcome, and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church. We are a Southern Baptist church dedicated to seeking the glory of God by proclaiming the gospel in all that we do. If you would like more information, please visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org. Romans chapter 9. We're going to back up to verse 22 to read simply for the sake of context. And then the point that we are uh, talking about is in verses 24 to 29. This is the fourth uh, section, the fourth point um, in this chapter. Uh, it's, It's the intention. We're finishing it up today. Fourth point is that the Gentiles are included uh, in the children of promise that God has sovereignly chosen for salvation. So God has chosen who the children of promise will be, and that includes Gentiles. Let's back up to verse 22 for the sake of context. We'll read to 29 and then pray. What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience Vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us, whom he also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. As he says also in Hosea, I will call those who were not my people, My people and her who was not beloved, beloved. And it shall be that in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved. For the Lord will execute his word on the earth thoroughly and quickly. And just as Isaiah foretold, Unless the Lord of Sabaoth had left to us a posterity, we would have become like Sodom and would have resembled Gomorrah. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, we bow ourselves and recognize there's a mystery taking place here. A mystery that we understand just a a very small fraction. That Lord, somehow when we learn your truths, you bring transformation to our lives. We learn your truths and you increase godliness and Christ's likeness. You sanctify, you transform, you bless, you encourage, you convict, you challenge and things we don't understand. We ask God that you will come now and do all of these things. We want to know you. We want to worship you first and foremost because you're worthy. All of the ends of the earth and all of the ends of the cosmos ought to bow and worship to you. This is the highest of what is right, and we long to participate in this. We also long to participate in this, O oh God, because you are our treasure and the one we want. So, Lord, we pray, give us more of yourself as you give us your truth. Shine light, send your spirit, accomplish your purposes, bring your kingdom to come and your will to be done on earth just like it is in heaven when you give commands. And we pray, oh God, work in the hearts of your people. And I ask, Lord, bring light bulbs to turn on also in those that are not yet in Christ. Give help. Lord, I want to worship you now as I preach, so please help me in this. Help all of us to worship as we hear and we receive. Bless our little ones in the next room. Cause the light bulbs to turn on in their hearts, oh God, as well we pray. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Noah had three sons, Shem and Ham and Japheth. And we know that Ham committed some kind of vile sin against his father, and Noah spoke a word of curse. He spoke a curse against his son Ham and his descendants. Now, you may think that that sounds mean, okay? Actually, the Holy Spirit led Noah to that moment, and Noah spoke more than just that word to Ham. The Spirit led him to speak a a brief word of prophecy concerning all three of his sons, 
towards Ham. He spoke a word of curse and on his descendants, but then he pronounced a blessing on his son, Shem. Now, Shem, that's where we get our, our modern day word for uh, Semitic. So when somebody hates Jewish people, we talk about anti-Semitism, that's anti-Shemitism that comes from this son of Noah. And then, but Noah wasn't done. He also said something concerning Japheth. So there was a curse towards Ham, a blessing towards Shem. And then he said this towards Japheth. He said that Japheth and his descendants would find blessing in their connection and association to the blessed people, the people of Shem. Let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. Canaan was the son of Ham. Now, prophecy can be a bit tricky. As we grow in Christ and study the Bible more, we, we, we grow in the skill of kind of learning uh, how to read these things. And one of the things that we learn early on in studying prophecy, as we mention often, is that pr prophecy very often has multiple fulfillment. Meaning there will be an earthly way, maybe even a temporary kind of way that the prophecy is fulfilled, but then there will be a greater and an eternal way fulfilled in Christ that we see it. So immediately with Shem and Ham and Japheth, we see the curse pronounced on Ham led to this. Ham's descendants included Canaan, uh, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Egyptians, the Philistines, etc. Are you noticing a theme there? These are all people groups that ended up becoming enemies of the people of Israel, reject and defied the living God and lived largely under the curse. They were cursed in that they warred against God. The descendants of Shem, Shem led to Abraham, the father of the people of Israel, leading eventually to the Lord Jesus. And so you know, so in this moment that we have revealed here, God revealed that out of these three sons who would repopulate the earth, that's significant. Shem, Ham, and Japheth repopulated the entire earth. Every person on the planet brings their lineage all the way back to Shem, Ham, or Japheth. Out of these three sons who would repopulate the earth, the Lord revealed there would be cursed people, there would be blessed people, and then there would also be some who are able to find blessing by going and joining themselves, associating with the blessed people. Let me ask you, do we see any of that in Romans 9 in a greater and eternal sense? Yes. Blessed people, cursed people, and people blessed by their connection with the ultimate seed of Shem, the Lord Jesus, God has chosen objects of mercy, though none of us deserve it. God has chosen some to leave them in their sins, to let them have what they want. It's not cruel. He's letting them have what they want. And we also see that there is an opportunity that we can have to leave any kind of curse and to come and into the realm of blessing by associating with the Lord Jesus. There's also something significant to see as well, by the way. Revealed in moments like when Rahab, the prostitute, trusted in the Lord and was made right with him. Now, where was Rahab from? Rahab was from the land of Canaan. Rahab not only was from one of those people of the descendants of Ham, the Canaanites, but also was engaging in wickedness in her life. However, when she turned her back, on the wicked culture and the wicked false religion that she came out of and she joined herself to the Lord, she became a part of the people of God. What do we see? It is possible to leave the curse and come into blessing by joining yourself to the Lord Jesus by faith. Regardless of what people group, Regardless of what background, regardless of what sin you might have participated in, you can be made right with God by uniting yourself to the Lord Jesus in faith. And, and this is the part that brings the connection to what I'm talking about today. You become a part of the people of God. You become a part of the beloved ones, 
the sons and daughters of the living God. What we have happening in the passage that we're looking at is that a number of prophecies from the Old Testament are brought up. And some of those prophecies are ones that were given specifically to Israel, but now are being applied to Gentiles who turn to Christ in faith. We spent our time last week looking at 24 passages uh, from the Bible that show this major point. From the time before the world was made, it has been God's intention all along in his secret sovereign purposes to save souls from every tribe and tongue and people and nation through faith in the Lord Jesus. This is not a new thought in God's mind. This was revealed even in the Old Testament. It's being clearly revealed now. And so what I'm going to do this week is kind of a back cleanup um, in point number four in verses 24 to 29, and just going to kind of finish up looking at everything we haven't looked at yet. And then at the end, there's a major conclusion that I'm going to present to you that after seeing this argument that has been made from verses 1 through 29, there is a big conclusion that I believe the book of Romans is leading us to, as well as the book of Gal Galatians, as well as the book of Hebrews is leading us to, but that before we'll understand it, there's a lot of foundation laying and a lot of truths that have to be in place before we'll understand it. So I'm going to bring up five truths that we have not yet considered. The first three will go pretty quickly and we'll spend most of our time on the last two. So five truths, finishing up verses 24 to 29. Here's the first one. In Christ, so let me make clear. Uh, this is not addressing every person on the planet. This is not addressing even every person who's hearing my voice. This is for those who have understood the message of the gospel and they have turned to Christ. They have run to Jesus for refuge, place their faith in Jesus to be saved, united yourself to the Lord. If that is you, for you who are in Christ, you are called by God, my people, beloved, and sons, and the book of Galatians adds in their daughters as well. We understand sons is being used in a generic way there, sons, of the living God. Look at verses 25 and 26 again. As he says also in Hosea, I will call those who were not my people, my people, and her who was not beloved, beloved. And it shall be that in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people there, they shall be called sons of the living God. Christian, I want to bring the application to you as we see a place here where there are uh, words of affection from God that are spoken. Christian, don't forget who you are. Don't forget your position. Don't forget your identity. When your sin brings you shame, when you live through one of those seasons where you're under the discipline of the Lord or the Lord has just brought difficulty into your life, don't forget who you are in Christ you are beloved, you are sons and daughters, you are the ones that God calls my people. Now we've already studied the doctrine of adoption, um, but let me show you a passage we did not look at whenever we studied through that. Turn to John 17 with me if you will, or I'm just going to read it to you briefly. John 17, again, part of the high priestly prayer. We find ourselves here just all the time. John 17, Jesus is praying for his people down through the centuries. John 17, starting in verse 22, Jesus is saying to the Father, the glory which you have given to me, I have given to them. So there is glory that Jesus has given to his people, the church, that they may be one just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity. There are some days we've spent a lot of time on that one. Watch what he says next. So that, here are two consequences. Jesus wants this to be the case for two reasons. So that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. Christian, as the father, meaning in the same kind of manner, as the father loves his son, Jesus, he loves you who are in Christ. Every once in a while, we do need to remind ourselves 
God loves you and he likes you. <laughs> he cares about you and he is committed to your good. I, I just find this to consistently be the case. I get tripped up in my own mind and I find as I talk with other Christians on a pretty regular basis, it's possible, it's weird, but it's possible to be convinced that God loves me, but to struggle with the idea that God likes me, that God has affection for me. Christian, don't forget who you are. You are loved by your father. He likes you. He cares for you. There is affection for you. He is committed to your good. God loves you as he loves his son. Now we do need to understand the manner in which he loves us. And this is sometimes where we get our confusion. I love my wife and I love my children. I love them in different ways with a different nature and with a different kind of love. See, Towards my children, I'd like them to cover their ears here maybe just for a second. I sometimes think of difficult work for them to do and I tell them to go do that difficult work because I know that it forms character in them and I don't want to raise sissies. I want them to be tough. I want to develop them into something that is able to live for the glory of God. So I'll sometimes think up difficult work and go give that to them. I don't do that towards my wife. <laughs> I discipline my children. I don't do that towards my wife. I, I love them in a particular kind of way. Why? Because my responsibility as their father is formative. I have the job of knowing that there are things that need developed in them. And so I want to develop those kinds of things. And that involves things like discomfort and difficulty. I, I love them in a particular kind of way. Well, listen, Christian. The father loves us, but he does not love us as I love my wife. He loves us as children. And let's be very honest. We are children with behavioral issues. <laughs> if I can be PC about it, okay? We are children who need our butts whooped. Okay, uh, when we're out in public and such, uh, sometimes uh, when we see some kid throwing a tantrum, I, I take a moment and I use it as a teaching moment for my children. I don't think I'm doing it judgmentally. I'm doing it as a teaching moment. And I'll say to my kids, that kid needs his butt whooped. Okay, well, let's, let's be honest here uh, with ourselves. We are sons and daughters of God who need discipline. We are sons and daughters who have sinful tendencies inside of us. The father is forming things. The father is disciplining us. The father is at work in us. And so when we experience hardship, when we experience difficulty, sometimes people rush immediately to, well, I don't think God loves me. You're, you're, you're misunderstanding the manner and the nature of his love. He loves us as his children and children who need things formed. But Christian, don't forget your title, your position, your identity. You are beloved. Here's the second part. The Lord is saving a remnant of physical Israel and not all. Look at verses 27 and 28 again. Uh, verses 25 and 26, we're addressing Gentiles and then so as to clarify God's intentions towards Israel, physical Israel. Verse 27, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea. So though physical Israelites be as plentiful as the number of grains of sand on the earth, Yet it is the remnant that will be saved. It is a smaller amount. Verse 28, for the Lord will execute his word on the earth thoroughly and quickly. Paul is clarifying some things there. They thought, they misunderstood that either all Israel was going to be saved or maybe most of Israel. And what Paul does there is he quotes a passage from the Old Testament. I want you to notice this again, multiple fulfillment because originally in the book of Isaiah, it was addressed concerning some physical things and judgment on the earth. That there would be, a, that there would be Israelites die, but a smaller portion kept alive. But here he is applying it spiritually. So, you know, make note of this over and over again. We're being shown how to read Old Testament prophecy here. But let's, let's make note of this. God has chosen to work in ways that confound the wisdom of men. If you and I were writing the history of this world, we, we would not write it like this. What God has done is unexpected. But in everything that God is doing, he is demonstrating and displaying 
certain things. He is displaying his character. He is displaying his glory. Understand that God is displaying his righteousness in how he is interacting with Israel. He is showing he owes no one. He is showing uh, what righteousness according to the law looks like. They're trying to make themselves righteous by the law and are failing. God is demonstrating his righteousness. At the same time, God is demonstrating his mercy and grace by going to Gentiles of the earth, those who were not seeking him and then drawing them to himself. He is demonstrating both that he is righteous and that he is merciful. He is demonstrating his glory by the sermons that are preached in the way in which he's worked with this whole Jew and Gentile things. All are dependent on his grace. Thirdly, unless the Lord had come to us, we would all march to our destruction. Look at verse 29 again. And just as Isaiah foretold, unless the Lord of Sabaoth, that's a a word referring to armies, the Lord of armies, had left to us a posterity, unless the Lord had left to us a lineage, we would have become like Sodom and would have resembled Gomorrah. Do you see how once again this is showing the necessity of God's sovereign work to save souls. What it is saying is unless God had done this, there would be no one. Unless God had worked even to save a remnant from Israel, there would be no one. Israel would have been left like Sodom and Gomorrah. What's Sodom and Gomorrah? Completely annihilated, completely wiped out. It is in God's grace that he created a remnant. The remnant who are being saved are those because God made them. God is calling a remnant to to himself. Understand, there is not a small remnant of Israel who is being saved because there's only a small group who's smart, holy, and righteous. There's a small group because God has chosen in grace to do it like this. Again and again, this passage is putting emphasis on we are dependent on the sovereign grace of God. Now here's the fourth thing. There are some significant things to learn in this passage about how we read the Old Testament scriptures. So notice, like the New Testament often does, we we are instructed here in how New Testament believers even Gentile New Testament believers are to read the Old Testament. We are shown that there are promises made to Israel that have a way that they apply to us. Uh, I'm going to read to you 1 Corinthians 10, verse 11. You can turn there if you like. Uh, But in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul is preaching to a church that was entirely composed of Gentile Christians. And he is explaining some of the um, truths from Old Testament, the wilderness wanderings. And after uh, talking about some of those wilderness wanderings and what happened there, here is verse 11. Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. So we in this new covenant, we who are in Christ are the ones in an ultimate sense meant to be the audience of the scriptures from all along. And what that means, there are ways that we are to read the Old Testament as new covenant, even Gentile believers and say, that's for me. See, here here are three levels of learning how to interpret the Old Testament. A brand new Christian, level one. A brand new Christian, not knowing very much, doesn't know about the covenants, doesn't know about all the particulars of context and the original audience and some of those kinds of things. New believer just hears, you need to read your Bible. So that new believer might pick up in random places in the Old Testament and read and just apply basically everything to themselves. And that new believer will get some stuff wrong. But in the grace of God, that new believer is going to get a lot of stuff right. So for instance, that new believer might read Isaiah 41.10. Here's what it says. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. 
Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right arm. That new believer will encounter that verse, give zero thought to the context in the original audience, but just will apply it to themselves and be encouraged. And we say, great. But here's kind of maybe a second level that enters some confusion. It's kind of like that college freshman that's had one psychology class and is really dangerous, okay? Well, as they start to learn some things about how to interpret the Bible, this is maybe Bible college and seminary students kind of thing, a guy begins to learn that context really matters and that the who the original audience was intended to be, uh, that that's a, a big deal and it matters. But that guy might get himself confused and say this. You know, the book of Isaiah was written to the southern kingdom of Judah. And Isaiah 41 comes in a passage, actually, that follows a couple of chapters where the prophet Isaiah spoke to King Hezekiah. And to King Hezekiah, Isaiah told him that in the days after his death, that there would be judgment and destruction that came upon the southern kingdom, but that in generations after that, God would come to Judah once again and would restore them. Do not fear. I'm with you. I will restore you. I'll uphold you by my righteous right arm. So you Gentile, you have no right to take that verse and to apply it to yourself because it wasn't addressed to you. But here's a third level of learning to interpret. The New Testament teaches us to take Old Testament promises and apply them to ourselves even though it was addressed to Israel. The New Testament teaches us how to take promises and show how they count for you and I who are in Christ. Places like this, places like Galatians, places like the entire book of Hebrews, places like 1 Corinthians 10 and 2 Corinthians 1. They're teaching us that New Testament believers are the ones upon whom the ends of the ages have come. So Isaiah 41.10 is for you, New Testament Gentile Christian. It is for you. God gave it to Israel but there is a way in which it is to apply to us. God is smart enough to make that happen. God is incomprehensibly wise so that he is able to give promises and prophecy that have multiple fulfillment, that have a way in which they apply in a temporary way and then come to us in Christ. Okay, so you, Gentile Christian living in the year 2021, you are not sitting by the banks of the physical Jordan River waiting to enter the land of Canaan physically. And so in the book of Deuteronomy, where God speaks to his people and he says, I'm bringing you into the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. No, you're not there by the banks of the Jordan. But the New Testament teaches us to see there is instruction for that in me. You who are in Christ. You are awaiting a promised land, the promised land of heaven. It is a land that flows with milk and honey, a land that flows with sustenance and sweetness. You see what God is doing there? There is a way that those promises made there have application to us. Now, of course, there is the need for carefulness and learning how to do this. You can't take every kind of promise that would ever be given and apply them to yourself as though when God spoke to Mary and said, you'll conceive as a virgin, that somehow there's a way that this applies to you spiritually, okay? That's not the case. There's carefulness. There is skill in learning to interpret that comes. But what we are saying is that the New Testament teaches us to apply these things to ourselves. You are his beloved, his people, his sons and daughters. So pay attention to these passages that teach us how to read the Old Testament. Now, everything that I just taught there segues very helpfully into this last truth that I'm going to teach. And it is a big one. Here's number five. I'll call it our name, our position, and our identity. There's something that I've been hinting around about for about two years now, as we've been studying through the book of Romans. Four or five times I've brought us right up to the edge of that truth, and I've said, but hold on, I'm gonna come back to this later. Today's the day I come back to this later. 
And there's a reason why. And I think it's the exact same reason why Paul didn't say it early. It's the kind of thing he took nine chapters to develop in a logical argument before he comes out and makes this clear. And so if we say it too early, there could be great misunderstanding that comes. So what I'm going to do, I'm, I'm going to build an argument here. I'm going to make 12 statements, references to scripture. And as I do so, I'm going to ask some leading questions. And I'm going to wait till the end to make the conclusion. I'm not just trying to build suspense. I'm trying to make sure the foundation of truths are laid. And I'm going to ask some leading questions along the way. I want you to come to the conclusion before I spell out and say it with clarity. So 12 statements with some intentionally leading questions. Number one, I just taught you about how we apply Old Testament promises to us. The promises made to Israel, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob now apply to you who are in Christ. Here's the leading question. Why do they apply to you who are in Christ? If they were given to Israel and some of the promises even mention Israel by name, I think that's significant. Why do they apply to you, Gentile Christian? Number two. Uh, turn over to Galatians with me, please. Galatians chapter 3. Galatians 3, find verses 26 to 29. I'm going to read it. He builds an argument in chapter 3, by the way. It's just done in a briefer kind of way. Uh, Galatians 3, start in verse 26. For you are all... Okay, Christians, those in Christ, sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. Hang on to that. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants. The word is seed there. Very significant word. Abraham's seed heirs according to promise. You who are in Christ, most importantly, you're sons and daughters of God. But you also need to know that you are sons and daughters of Abraham. Because in the way that God has worked, he gave all the great promises to Abraham. And in Christ, you are sons and daughters of Abraham. There's a way that this works out. When God gave the promise, if you look back to verse 16 in Galatians 3, by the way, he gives the argument that's there. When God made the promise, he spoke to Abraham. He said, I'm going to bless your seed. There's a, there's a point made in one Hebrew letter. Not seeds, plural, seed, singular. The ultimate seed of Abraham is Christ. If you are in Christ... You are now sons and daughters of Abraham. Here's my question. What are the children of Abraham called? Number three, in Hosea chapters one and two, where God said, I will call those who were not my people. I'll now call them my people. That was spoken of Israel. And now it is applied to Gentiles in the New Testament. So what does God call that group that is his people? Number four, back in the book of Romans, if you'll jump to chapter two, Romans two, this is one of the moments I brought us right up to the edge and almost stated the conclusion, but thought we better wait. Romans chapter two, look at verses 28 and 29. Here's, here's part of Paul's building the logical argument. Verse 28, Romans two, 28, for he is not a Jew who is one outwardly. Let me add a word there to emphasize what's being said. He is not a true Jew who was one outwardly, and uh, nor is circumcision true circumcision, that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a true Jew who was one inwardly, and true circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. Okay, so listen what he says. Being a Jew is not a physical thing. It's an internal thing. And true circumcision is not something done with hands, True circumcision is the new birth. The new birth done in the heart by the Spirit of God. So what does that mean for those who are physically Gentiles, but they are circumcised inwardly? Is there a conclusion that we can draw? Number five, related. 
Philippians 3.3 speaks to a church and it was a church comprised mostly of Gentile Christians. And Paul says, he tells them to avoid the, 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 the falsehoods of the Judaizers and of falling for wanting to be under the law. He says this, for we Christians are the true circumcision. We are the true circumcision. Now, the circumcision was a title that was used to refer to Israel. Now it is applied to the church, to all of those who are right with God. So what does that mean for Gentiles about who we are in relation to God? Number six, in Ephesians 2, uh, we are told that in Christ, the dividing wall of separation between the Jews and the Gentiles has been torn down. The two groups have now been made into one. The believers made into one people. What do we call that people? Number seven, Jesus said that he was gathering uh, the lost sheep who are spread abroad and making them into one flock with one shepherd. Here's the question. What do we call that one flock? Number eight, this is a big one. I told you last week that the parable um, that we looked at of the man who gave the banquet, I said that's a really big picture to keep in your mind understanding the Jew and the Gentiles. This would be the other big picture to keep in your mind. In Romans 11, when we get there, there's going to be a, a vast illustration that is used. The illustration is this, there's a tree, the tree of Israel. And it's going to teach that those uh, Israelites who do not believe in Christ, their branches are broken off of the tree, but that Gentiles who are in Christ, we're kind of like branches growing on wild olive trees out in the wilderness. And God had to go out into the wilderness and, and cut the branch and bring it back to the tree and graft us into the tree. So here's my leading question. What does that mean then about our relation to God and to the people who were there? What does that make us? What do we call the tree? And if we are a part of it, Number nine, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, Peter says to believers, regardless of their earthly heritage, he says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and a people for God's own possession. He says that the Christian, those four titles are, if you look at the passage, it's quotation, quotation from the Old Testament, things that God said towards Israel. They are titles that God gave to Israel. I think the one there about a holy nation is pretty important. You, people of God, are a holy nation. So if that's the case, if all of those are titles from Isaiah 43, Isaiah 61, Deuteronomy 4, Deuteronomy 7, Deuteronomy 10, Exodus 19, all of those are titles given to Israel. And now God says to the church, regardless of the physical heritage, this is you. What does that mean about us then? What does that mean for the church? Similarly, number 10 in Revelation 5, 9 to 10. So going back to some passages we looked at last week again, uh, let me read that passage to you. It says, uh, this, is, this is believers in heaven worshiping Jesus. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. For you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Now listen to this part. You have made them to be a kingdom and priest to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Once again, kingdom and priest. These are things that were spoken to Israel. And now God says the church, they comprise the kingdom. They are the priest. So if that was Israel's title, then what does that then mean for us Gentile Christians? Number 11, the New Testament teaches, 2 Corinthians 1, that all of the promises of God are yes in Christ. And Paul said that to a Gentile church, which means basically what we've been saying. Basically what we've been saying. We are to take the Old Testament promises 
And they do have a yes for us, even Gentile Christians in Christ. For instance, Jeremiah 29, 11. Jeremiah 29, 11 says, I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for calamity to give you a future and a hope. Now, at some point, you might have heard somebody say, oh, no, 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 you can't take that promise for yourself because that was spoken to, you know, Judah at a certain time in history and all those kinds of things after they had gone through dev devastation and judgment and such. Well, so was Hosea. So was Isaiah. The New Testament teaches us that we can take those promises and they have a yes for us in Christ. So, why? Why do those promises belong to us? Then here's the last one, and it's the most compelling. Number 12, in Romans 9, it has argued, not all physical Israel is the true Israel of God. The true Israel of God are the children of the promise. He argues for the rest of the chapter and comes to in our section to say this, Gentiles who are in Christ are among the children of promise. What conclusion can we draw from that? True Israel are the children of promise. Gentiles are among the children of promise. What conclusion can we draw from that? What does that make Gentile Christians? Okay. So now after all of those, I'm hoping in your minds, you've already stated the conclusion, but if not, I'm gonna spell it out with clarity. For those things and a whole lot more that I'm not mentioning, here's the conclusion that many of God's people have come to through the centuries. All true believers, the called of God, even from those from among the Gentile Christians are a part of the true Israel of God. Or another way of saying it, some have said it like this, the church is the true spiritual Israel. Now, that is a bit of a controversial statement. It's a controversial statement because through history, and that includes today, there have been a variety of different ways that Christians have seen this whole Jew and Gentile relationship. So let me, let me interact with it a little bit here. First, uh, the Puritans, for instance, and some of those early reformers, most of them or a large part of them uh, held a view that we sometimes refer to as replacement theology. And what they believed was that God was done with the nation of Israel. He was done with them and God replaced them with the New Testament church. And so what they believed is that there was nothing yet to come in the future for the physical people on the earth of the Israelites. Now, certainly we can understand how they came to that conclusion, but I don't believe that matches the text of Scripture. For instance, here in Romans, look over to chapter 11 for a second. Romans 11. Look at verse 1. After giving a lot of explanation on this Jew and Gentile thing, here's what Paul says in verse one, because there could be some confusion. He says, I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. And then he goes on to explain some more. And later in chapter 11, I believe he makes uh, the case that there is going to be a future awakening. A day that there is a massive repentance amongst the physical people of Israel. So I, I don't believe that the replacement idea is biblical. Others today, let me also say as I go through with this, I, I'm making a case to you, but I want to say that those who hold some other views, this isn't one of those that we call them heretics and say, stay away from me, okay? Even within this church, there may be some variety of ways to see this. This is not one of those to divide over. I wanna make that clear. There's another view as well. Uh, even today, those who hold to um, dispensationalism, okay? So that's a, a big word, refers to a view of the end times. Amongst that group, there are many within that who believe that it is wrong and greatly wrong to mix the Gentiles into with Israel in any way. They hold to a very great separation between Israel and the church. 
You will even hear some of them say, not all, so I don't want to misrepresent, but some of them say this statement right here. Now this one I do highly disagree with and I believe is dangerous. You will hear some of them say that the church is a Gentile institution and that God has a different plan for Israel. I highly disagree with that statement and believe that one to be dangerous. You know, I'm sure in your minds you're going, what? How could you even come to that? The book of Acts. You know, the whole, the whole book of Acts is the church being built and it's built first amongst the Jews, the apostles. What does the New Testament call them? The, the pillars of the church. They are the foundation with Jesus being the chief cornerstone of the church. Okay. And so the argument though of Romans 9 is that true Israel are the children of promise and Gentiles are a part of the children of promise. Philippians 3.3 3 says, we, we are the true circumcision. Ephesians 2, the dividing wall's been broken down. Galatians 3, there is no Jew or Greek in Christ. All are one. Romans 11, there's a tree. We're all on the same tree. There's not 12,000 different kinds of trees for 12,000 different people groups. There's one tree, one group. Then there are others who believe, this would also include some of the uh, certain reformed brethren, that Gentile believers are sons and daughters of Abraham, but we ought not ever call them Israel or associate them in that kind of way. We may think of them as other seed of Abraham. But is not the argument of Romans 9 the whole point that the children of promise of Abraham come through Isaac and Jacob and not Ishmael or any of the other seeds. So there is some variety, but I've made the case to you. I've made the case that I believe Gentile believers are grafted into a tree. And that tree can be called by a number of different names. And one of them is the true Israel of God. If you'll take that and then bear that in mind as you read through, for instance, the book of Revelation, I think that you'll have some moments where like a light bulb comes on and be like, oh, that's why God said that right there. I think it will give some greater understanding. Now, it may be that you think the church ought not be called the true Israel or spiritual Israel. Okay, okay. But whether or not you think we should be called that, you need to know this. Galatians 3.14, Christ redeemed us in order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Ephesians 3, 4 through 6, God is revealing the mysteries kept hidden for ages, namely, specifically, that Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow partakers of the grace of life. We in Christ, regardless of your bloodline, are the intended audience and the recipients of the promises made for thousands of years, those made to Abraham, those made to Israel. Christian, you are to take the Old Testament promises for yourself, but you need to know why you're supposed to do that. It, it is not enough to just sort of say, well, I just feel like I should. No, that's not logical grounds. If the Old Testament promises apply to you, you need to know why they apply to you. What right do you have to them? What right do you have to Isaiah 41.10, Jeremiah 29.11? The right that you have is that you are in Christ and Christ is the seed of Abraham and therefore you are a part of the children of promise. That's your right. That's the logical grounds that are there. You know, these matters of truths, they're too big. They're too important for wishy-washy, I kind of think, or I feel something. No, these promises matter. You need to know that you are standing on something solid, that there is logical reason. There is, there is understanding of truth that you have when you stand on those promises and not just, I feel like it. That's not enough before God. And let me say something to you if you're not sure that you're in Christ. If you're not sure that you're in Christ, if you've never turned to be saved and you maybe think that when we talk about it, it sounds a little goofy and that you don't need that. I'm going to ask you, 
Do you think that you will be in heaven when you die? Do you think that you will have eternal life? Okay, most everybody always answers yes. Here's my next question. Why do you think that? What grounds do you have? If you say something like, well, I just feel like that's the way it ought to work, or I just feel like that's what God's gonna do. Do you not understand? This is a gamble of cosmic proportions. Your soul is eternal. We are talking about a hell that burns forever and ever and ever. You are gambling your soul on, I just feel like it should be that way. That's not good enough. You need to know with absolute certainty what the way to be made right with God is and make absolute certain that you are right with God. And we are telling you that the way to be made right with God is in Christ. Be united to Christ and you get to be the recipients of the promises. But outside of Christ, you don't have any of the good promises of God. None of those that have been made come to you. Feelings are insufficient. You need to know logically, critical reasoning, why it is you are safe in Christ. So we plead with you, turn to Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, the, the more we study how you've brought all of this about, the more overwhelmed and amazed we are. Lord, we're just astounded all the work you put into this. We know that there are certain promises that are so easy a child can understand that if we will believe in Jesus, we will be saved. But Lord, the deeper we go, the more we just see how much you have put into this plan of redemption. And Lord, we thank you. We thank you that you have counted us amongst your children of promise. We are thankful for what we have in Christ, the inheritance, the promises, the kingdom to come. We worship you, Lord. We love you. We pray that as we leave, we'll live as people who are the recipients of promises, that we'll live so as to glorify you. And Lord, I pray for any in the room that has not yet turned to Christ. I pray that you will open their eyes so that the great realization comes. Give us help and give us blessing. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You are dismissed. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this week's message. Tune in again next week as we continue through God's Word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at TrueVineIND. Or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.com dot org.